So a couple weeks ago, we spent some time looking at spiritual warfare from Ephesians chapter 6. You might have remembered that. It was the section where, man, Trey went really long in Ephesians 6 and uh, had to slam in the application at the end. Well, in that passage, Paul is actually calling the church in Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God. To put on the whole armor of God for what purpose? Does anybody remember from Ephesians 6? Why do you put on the whole armor of God? In order to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, right? Think about that phrase, the schemes of the devil. That word schemes. What is a schemer? How would you answer that? Satan is a schemer. What is a schemer? Does does that word ever get thrown around, I guess, in your language today? All right. I'm not that old. What is a schemer? Okay, yeah, so somebody who plans, that's good, that's a key word. Somebody who plans to deceive you for their own gain. That's really what a, what a, a schemer is. And so a schemer doesn't scheme by going around telling everybody that they're getting schemed and that they're scheming them, or else their scheme really wouldn't work that well. Um, and so a schemer is deceitful, right? They're a master of subtlety. They make promises that seem believable. The Apostle Paul, he knew this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul warns Christians I am saying this so that no one may, will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Arguments that sound reasonable. Paul's saying that it's arguments that sound reasonable and truthful that often get us. It's those kinds of arguments. It's the argument with a little truth that's kind of just sprinkled on top. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Outside they look great, but inside they're evil. And this is where we need to see the connection between satanic deceit and religious respectability. What do I mean by that? Those lies that often sound like truth when you're like, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I just need to be the best version of myself. I just need to do me, right? They sound great. They sound really spiritual. But ultimately, they've got lies that are behind them. The devil likes making sin look good. He likes making it look good. He likes making it sound good. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, he comes to Eve in the form of a serpent. What do you know? He's already in disguise. He's in the form of a serpent. He lies to Eve, telling her that she will not die if she eats the fruit. After all, God knows this. Listen to verse 5. God knows. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now, supposedly, God is giving his stamp of approval for this sin that Satan is tempting Eve with. As Jared Wilson puts it in his book, the best trick of the devil is getting you to think his ideas aren't just yours, but even God's ideas. He's deceitful. Listen to the next verse. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, right? Good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So what we see right here is that the hope that this fruit promised was fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. Those three things. You probably need to write those down. Fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. And friends, the lies that we get blindsided by promise the exact same thing. Fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. They don't outwardly look and sound like bad things. They don't. 
But the bad things, right, they become bad things when we grasp for them in the wrong ways. Does that make sense? They become bad things. They're good things that become bad things when we grasp for them in wrong ways, in bad ways. Rather than leading us to fullness of life, they instead lead you to darkness and they lead you to despair. Satan has a greatest hits list. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of those hits. And the one that we're going to, the culturally relevant hits, they are. And we're going to look at a couple of those today. So the goal of this series is really just to equip you to identify some of these hits, to understand how they work, and how to overcome them with truth. That's the point of this series. See the lie, understand the lie, and then to address that lie with truth. That's what we're trying to do. Satan's jukebox is playing. Not like the Razorbacks jukebox after they won a couple football games last year, but it certainly is playing. Did anybody get that joke? Okay, so you guys, you guys watch football. And you see that? Okay. All right. You guys want to smack me right now. Um, the, so the lies that we're going to look at this morning are God just wants you to be happy and you only live once. All right? So first one, God just, that's the, the important word right there, God just wants you to be happy. So in this first lie, we're going to look at the topic of really of God and happiness. God and happiness. That's the topic. And it's, you're, we're really going to see kind of two lies that are going to come out of that. And one is the main lie. God just wants you to be happy. And so we're going to tackle that one first. So we just saw in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve were tempted with the promise of fulfillment, of beauty, and enlightenment. But what we need to recognize is that God created mankind with the capacity to actually want those very things. You do recognize that. He created them with that capacity. Because we're created in God's image, we are made to reflect God. The very things that we long for are ultimately found in God himself. God is the very definition of fullness, of beauty, and of wisdom. That's who he is. He, in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon is an old man, and he's reminiscing about life and his youth. And as he thinks back, he realizes all, that all the time that was wasted trying to fulfill his desires that were too big to be contained. He had everything you could ever want, but after having it, his heart still ached. Within him. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon gives us the reason why. It's because God had placed eternity in the hearts of mankind. And yet the problem is that as sinners, we try to fill eternity with things that are eternal, with things that are temporal. This is why the porn that you looked at last night didn't finally satisfy you but left you feeling ashamed. It's why after binge-watching Netflix, you feel like you wasted your entire day and you begin hating yourself because you should have been studying. You should have been spending time with the Lord, should have been spending time with others, right? You're hating on yourself for it. I want you to ask yourself this. Ask yourself this. If I only had blank, if I only had blank, I'd finally be happy. How would you answer that? If I only had blank, I'd finally be happy. If I only had a relationship with this girl or this guy, if I only had these friends, if I only had a better mind, if I only had this body or these looks, these parents, this upbringing, this much money, this job, then I'd finally be happy. For me, it's a quicker mind. Why? Why would I be finally happy if I just had a quicker mind? 
because my sermon prep would be done in half the time, and I would be able to do whatever I want with my week, right? Now, how you fill that blank in is going to change throughout the seasons of your life. It has certainly changed for me, right? I remember freshman year sitting up in Humphrey's dorm, ninth floor, penthouse, sitting on my bed, praying that God would give me success, you know, because success, once I get that, then I'm going to finally be happy. Lord, just make me successful. I mean, you can just imagine what the Lord's hearing right there. Okay, yeah, you want greatness for yourself. Okay, you want glory, yeah, and success. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think I'm going to reorient that life for you uh, and show you what that's about. But that was me. Maybe you're the exact same way. Maybe you're the exact same way. How would you fill in that blank? It shows us that we're trying to fill something eternal with something that is temporal. It shows us what we idolize and where we're in sin. This is one of Satan's greatest hits. And if, we can, if he can just get us to pursue fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment in earthly ways, then we're already on our way to disobeying God. Because we're natural-born sinners, sitters, because we're natural-born sinners, the gravitational pull of our hearts is always downward. It's always inward toward ourselves rather than upward and outward toward God. This is why Paul's main strategy in his letter to the Colossians is to fill them with Christ, who is the fullness of God, so that they will live a fruitful life for Christ. I mean, think about that strategy. What's going to get them to spiritual maturity? What is going to get them to be able to live a fruitful life for Christ? They need to be filled up with more of Christ. Why? Because Christ is the fullness of God. Do you want a full life? You need more of Christ. That's what he's getting at. And it's why Paul commands them to set their minds on heavenly things rather than on earthly things. It's why he warns them against those deceptive arguments that sound reasonable in chapter 2, verse 4. Why? Because those things are going to utterly wreck you from filling yourself with Christ so that you can actually live a full life in him rather than all of these temporal earthly things that promise fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. And so when we hear the mantra that God just wants you to be happy, it feels right. I mean, does that not feel right? I mean, we know that God's a good God. Surely he wants whatever I want. And it feels right. It sounds right. After all, there is a, a, a kind of satanic logic to this. If God created us with the capacity for happiness, then why would he keep it from us? Why would he keep that from us if he gave us the capacity for happiness? Which is exactly how Satan tempts Eve. And we assume that if we're not happy, then God is somehow robbing us, as if God owes us something, which is exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to doubt God. And friends, you don't have to be a pedophile or commit gross, immoral sin to understand that we're all bent toward our own happiness as the goal of our lives. You don't have to be that in order to understand that. We are all bent that way. And so we need to take a step back and ask the question, what is God's highest priority for my life? If not, just my happiness. Just is the key word. What is God's priority, highest priority for my life if not just my happiness? And so we see how, uh, how we're to answer that, or we see kind of how Paul would answer that in his suffering in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 through 28. He says this, Five times 
I received the 40 lashes, minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. God just wants you to be happy. Sorry, Paul, you didn't really, you didn't mount up to that. Or what about Jesus in Matthew 16, 24? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, an instrument of torture, <laughs> and follow me. Or 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Something is backwards here. Something's backwards here if my only desire in life is for th th thinking that God just wants me to be happy, if that's my goal. So how do you account for this if life is just about our happiness? What is God's highest priority for your life? I want us to read those passages right there at the end of your first page on your handout. You'll see those right there. So go ahead, grab one of those. Someone read number one. All right, number two. Number three. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Next one. All right, you can get Revelation 22. Or 22, 11, my bad. All right, so God's highest priority, his highest priority is his own glory seen in our holiness. So if God's highest priority for himself is his glory, his highest priority for us is holiness. I think that's what we're getting in those verses. To be holy is to be set apart from sin and completely and wholly devoted to God. That's what to be holy means. Now understand, holiness doesn't exclude happiness, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But in terms of priority, God is more concerned that we be holy than that we be happy according to a worldly standard. Satan, on the other hand, would be perfectly happy if we were perfectly happy apart from the holiness of God. As Wilson puts it, he knows happily unholy people, right? Listen to this. He knows happily unholy people rob glory from God and go happily to hell. That's tough. That's hard. God's chief concern is his glory and our holiness, but we need to watch out for the other lie on the flip side of this, and that's that God doesn't care if you're happy. That's the other lie. He doesn't really care if you're happy. We don't want to fall on the other side of the horse on this. God is first and foremost about your holiness, but he's not interested, right? He's not just disinterested in your happiness. He is interested in that. And we need, to discern, we need to discern between both extremes, which means that we've got to understand the difference between how the Bible talks about happiness and how the world talks about happiness. When you start to study this topic, you're going to know that a lot has been made 
on the distinction between joy and happiness. However, in the scriptures, happiness and joy are synonymous, meaning that they're really getting at the same thing. Two words really describing the same kind of thing. In our context today, though, happiness is often understood as a pleasurable emotion that we have from people, things, or experiences. Right? So understanding the worldly understanding of happiness versus happiness and joy according to the scriptures. You're happier when you smoke your calculus test than when you bomb it. Right? That's a pleasurable emotion. Right? For me, smoking my calculus test. Are y'all even in calculus or is it all like survey cal stuff? Anybody in here in calculus? Right now, raise your hand. Okay, relevant for one person. Wonderful. You're happier when a friend shows you love and care than when they don't. That's kind of a, this is a worldly kind of happiness. When happy things, right, when they happen, we're happy. This understanding of happiness and joy is more based on our circumstances, which can change, right? That's the ground. That's the root. It's based on circumstances, and your happiness goes up or down depending upon how your circumstances are going right now. Circumstances can change. However, the biblical understanding of happiness and joy are dependent upon Christ. This is why Paul commands us in Philippians 4.4 to rejoice in all circumstances. Where is Paul when he's writing Philippians? In prison. (laughs) That's exactly right. This is not a happy-go-lucky happiness, but our hearts being settled and worshipfully content in our right standing before God. It's the conviction that no matter what sadness we experience or weakness that we feel, ultimately, we're as secure as Christ is our indestructible Savior. That's how secure you are in a right standing before God if you've placed your trust in him. Today's understanding of happiness is is dependent upon circumstances. Biblical joy is dependent upon Christ. This is why Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, that he can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So one reason for our joy in suffering is the gift of the Spirit who is the security of our eternity. That's why you can have happiness and joy from a biblical perspective and a biblical understanding because no circumstances will ever change that. They can never rob that from you because Christ is an indestructible Savior. So does God not care about our happiness? Well, no, he does. He does care about it. So long as we understand this definition of happiness is ultimately promised in Christ, which leads us to our next point, the happiness Jesus promises. The happiness Jesus promises. So before looking at the happiness that Jesus promises, we need to be aware of the joy that Satan promises as well. So Satan's going to tempt us with things that aren't forbidden, but good. You do realize that. He's going to tempt you with a lot of good things, but he wants to tempt you to take them in the wrong ways. That's what he's trying to get. So for example, sex. Sex is a good gift of God so long as it's enjoyed by a husband and wife. However, it's forbidden or bad when it's taken out of that context. At any point in time, out of that context, it's bad. But so often, he wants us to take sex in the wrong ways and out of that context. We see how deceptive Satan is. He tries to pervert what God has made good. 
as Uncle Screwtape coaches his nephew Wormwood in, in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Has anybody read those? Everybody familiar with that book, or at least somewhat vaguely, I know who C.S. Lewis is. Wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. This is kind of just a, a picture of spiritual warfare and temptation. Uncle Screwtape coaches his nephew Wormwood. And this is what he says. He, God, made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. Satan's not a creator. He can't produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Satan is not a creator. He just takes what's created for good and he twists it for evil. That's what he does. However, when Christ is the center of our lives, the solar system of our desires and affections begin to fall in alignment around him who is the fullness of joy. The world tells you that man's greatest need is to have his desires met and that we meet the need of those desires through things, through experiences, through achievements. Only then will you be happy. Only then will you finally be happy. However, Christianity actually says that our biggest need isn't unmet desires, but is actually for sin to be paid for. And what we need isn't a thing, an experience, or achievement, but redemption. We need the forgiveness of sins, the glory of Christ. When Christ is ours by faith, the fullness of joy is ours regardless of our circumstances or feelings. So Jesus doesn't just promise his disciples worldly success. He doesn't promise them that. He actually promises himself. So in John chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus travels to a town in Samaria, which was hated by Jews, right? Because they weren't full-on Jews. These were people mixed with the Gentiles. And so he travels to Samaria, and he approaches a woman who's drawing water at a well in a Samaritan town. This woman has been pursuing happiness in relationships with men. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. But she misunderstood Jesus to be speaking about something physical. And yet Jesus was using a physical well to teach her a spiritual reality. He was showing her that she was drinking water from an empty well that would ultimately not satisfy her. You're looking for the wrong husband. You're looking for the wrong guy. I'm the guy. That's what he's teaching her. And that in him is the well of joy and satisfaction that will never run dry for eternity. All of us are searching for happiness, and Jesus has his hands stretched out, offering a bottomless an everlasting well of forever joy. You do recognize that. You can have that in him. So is God for your happiness? Yes, so long as it's in Jesus. Jesus is the promise of joy in pain. God is not a cosmic genie for all your hopes and dreams because your hopes and dreams aren't the point. Christ's glory is the point of your life. So God doesn't just want you to be happy. 
He wants you to be holy as he is holy and to find true, unending happiness in Jesus. Living a holy life in relationship with Jesus is actually the happy life. He has put eternity into our hearts, and the only one who can satisfy for eternity is the eternal one, who is Christ. Well, not only did Satan tempt Adam and Eve with something that good that can be received in a forbidden way, he also tempts them with the lie that they will not die. They will not die, which brings us to our second of great, uh, Satan's greatest hits. You only live once. YOLO. In the 1989 film, Dead Poets Society, has anybody seen that film in here? Couple, all right. Yeah, 1989 is a little before your time. Uh, former actor Robin Williams plays an inspiring teacher of English lit who famously tells his students at their boarding school to seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Seize the day. The big Latin term is carpe diem. Right? Carpe diem. This was one of the first popularizations of the term YOLO in the modern era. Well, then... Right? A couple years back, the rapper Drake took it to a whole nother level when he waxed poetically in his song, The Motto, that life is all about enjoying yourself while you can, whether that be with sex or with alcohol or with money or with more sex. Drake began to wax poetically in that song. If you haven't heard of that song, I probably would not go listen to it, nor would I go look up the lyrics. It's pretty terrible. So you've probably not only heard of YOLO, you've also probably heard of YOLO's brothers, No Regrets and God, Only God Can Judge Me. No Regrets and God, Only God Can Judge Me, right? Those are all, look at this, you guys probably used that this weekend. So those are YOLO's brothers, and not only do we hear this in our culture, but we also see this sentiment throughout the scriptures as well. Maybe you've read or heard this before in the scriptures in Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. But why does the Bible teach us that this thinking is foolish and futile? Why does it teach us that? It's because it doesn't account for all the facts. It does not account for all the facts. It only operates at the level of one's appetite, and it does not operate at the level of wisdom. Well, just do whatever you desire, whether it's wise or not. Wisdom weighs all the facts, not just the convenient ones. It weighs all the facts. Drake might have popularized the term, but it's actually as old as the beginning of time. It began with Satan in the garden in Genesis 3. Right? The woman says to the serpent that if she eats the forbidden fruit, she will die. And Satan replies to her, no, you will not certainly die. What's more stupid than not thinking beyond death? Well, that you're not going to die at all. <laughs> that you won't die at all. She knows what God says, yet conveniently ignores the facts for the prospect of fulfillment. Do you see the logic right here? Notice this logic. I might as well eat and enjoy the fruit because if, even if I die, it won't be until tomorrow. <laughs> Got to enjoy it now because even if I die, well, that'll be tomorrow. Friends, sin is stupid, and it makes you stupid. Okay? And I know that sounds harsh, but, I mean, we've all sinned, right? It makes us stupid. It has the logic of immediate fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment, but it wants us to make the most of our time by wasting it. Do you now see the connection between these two lies right here? God just wants you to be happy because you only get one shot at it. He just wants you to be happy because you only got one shot to get it. 
you see that immediacy in there. Think about some of the ways that we're tempted with this foolish logic each day. You deserve this. They deserve you doing this to them. No one's going to get hurt. This is actually going to free you from stress to do this. It will make you happy. And look, you only live once, right? You might as well do it. And then we believe that this relationship, this class, this grade, this job, this show, this salary, this drink, this joke, this act will somehow give us life. That if we don't participate, then somehow we're missing out on life and it won't come until later. That's the logic of sin. It promises you that you won't die. It promises immediate satisfaction and fulfillment. And understand, it is wise to make the most of time given to us. No doubt. It is wise to make the most that is given to us. But it's foolish to think that nothing comes after this life. As if this is all you got. You got one shot. You got to make the most of it. Right? That's foolishness. As Wilson says in his book, seize the day, yes, but seize it in light of what comes when you run out of days to seize. That's good. Because what comes after is judgment. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for people to die once. And after this, judgment. Back in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9, you've got it there in your handout. YOLO gets a dose of reality. And here's what he says. Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the, and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. <laughs> what a wonderful note right there at the end. Live the way you want to, but recognize God will bring you into judgment for it. Satan wants you to spend your life thinking that this is all that there is. That's what he wants. In fact, he doesn't want you thinking about death at all because that might actually move you to cry out to Christ. He doesn't want you thinking about death. Instead, he wants you to live as if you won't die. And for those of us who are younger, that's a tempting lie for us. Because we're young, we expect to live a full life, right? Well, I'm not going to die until like I'm 80 or 90. And so, I'm, you know, that's for later. I don't need to think about that. And I think we see this most when we become anxious over the troubles of this life that are presented to us. As if this is it, right? In the moment. It's this grade. It's this class. It's this job that if I don't get it, my life is over. If I don't get in this relationship, I'm just not, I'm not full enough, right? That's when we're tempted the most. Anxiety over the things of this world, the cares of this world, thinking that somehow if you don't get it right now, well, then you didn't achieve all the things that you wanted to achieve in this life. Somehow it's over and it's done for. Magnifying little things into big things, believing things that won't change. So we see this with those who think that their future hinges upon those things when in actuality it doesn't. Where do you see that kind of thinking in your own life? Where do you notice that kind of thinking, that anxiety that if these things don't happen, it's over, it's done for? Because your, heart's, your heart is responding in that way. You do recognize that. That's why in God's kindness, he gives, like, that anxiety is starting to come about because you're recognizing you're putting your hope and your trust in something temporal to fill something eternal. That's what's happening. Where do you see that thinking in your own life? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. 
What's worse than death? The second death, dying after you die, which is infinitely worse than the first. And Satan wants you to keep your mind off of that day. Instead, Satan wants to let the good pleasures that God has created, right? He wants to take those and pervert those. But instead, what we need to do is to take what is good, those good pleasures that God has created, and let them serve you as signposts that point you to someone greater, a greater glory, a greater joy in Christ. As John Piper put it, life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. What a great line. That's, so, that's just so Piper-esque. Life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great. Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. Friends, living only for fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment is like playing in a mud puddle when you've got this pristine beach just around the corner. That's what it's like. Remember that judgment is coming. Judgment matters. Remember death and what comes after death. By all means, seize the day by taking hold of eternity day to day. Enjoy the gifts that God gives in their proper place. Last point. Live once, die twice, live twice, die once. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Nicodemus, your boy Nico, one of the religious elites of Jesus' day, comes to him at night. And he tries to spark up a convo with Jesus. But Jesus cuts straight to the point with him and he says, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus is just awkward conversationalist here, right? I mean, he's coming like, Jesus, we hear that you're a teacher, come from God. And Jesus is like, be born again. (laughs) What a wonderful conversation. Super awkward. But he knows Nicodemus' heart and he knows what Nicodemus needs. So Nicodemus is utterly confused, wondering how in the world he's going to get back up into his mother's womb and be born physically again. He was missing the spiritual reality behind the physical picture that Jesus was painting for him. Jesus was referring to the new birth, the second birth that happens when we repent of sin and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life. When that happens, we no longer live once, but we live twice. We don't just live this life, but we live a life in eternity And what we see throughout the New Testament is that this new birth requires us to put to death our old ways of seeking fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment in anything and in anyone other than Jesus himself. And why? Because to reject Jesus is to reject the real life that lasts, because he himself is life. To do life without him is to choose a death worse than your physical death one day. It's to choose spiritual death that comes after your physical death. Spiritual death is far worse than your physical death. To choose Christ this side of death is to have life forevermore. You may die physically, but in him you're going to live eternally. Because if you live once, you'll die twice. But if you live twice, then you'll die once. So repent of your sins. Trust in Christ who died for your sins, who rose again so that you might live twice and then begin putting to death the old ways of pursuing fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment in all of the things outside of Christ. It's going to be too late to get your act together after you die. As C.S. Lewis put it, die before you die. There is no chance after. 
Let me pray for us. Father, we give praise to you that death is not the final answer for those in Christ. Lord, we pray that for those in here who don't know Christ, that they would turn from their sin and that they would trust in him who died so that they might live again and might live twice. Lord, we pray that we would live in light of eternity, that we would not try to fill what is eternal with temporal things. So, Lord, give us wisdom in this. Help us to spot these lies and help us to respond to these lies with truth. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.